Hey guys, welcome to episode 58 of the JV Club with Susan Orlean. I sometimes when I have guests like this, I feel like a real grown up. Um, very, very excited to have her on the podcast. I feel like I have so much to cover in the intro that I'm actually slightly nervous about it. Um, I'm afraid that I'm going to forget all the things I, was, I wanted to say, even though I have some of it written down. The first thing I wanted to say is um, I myself have noticed that there has been a change in the quality of the audio. Uh, I don't know why. Um, Jerry, I think it was you who on the Nerdist uh, page said that it sounds like there's tinsel crinkling in the background. I don't disagree with that. I think there's something going on with my mixer. Um, it's been going on for a while, but I thought maybe it was the quality of like the audio in my headphones. But now that I know someone else is hearing it, I'm sh- very chagrined and I'm going to try to find out what's going on. Having said that, I don't know Jack about Jack. Speaking of Jack, it might be one of the Jacks uh, for the microphone. So I, listen, if anybody has a clue on what might be going on, please let me know. Otherwise, I'm just going to try to figure out what it is. I have fairly expensive equipment, so it's kind of a bummer that uh, something has happened. So again, going to try to get to the bottom of that. I apologize for the uh, crinkle sound, the tinsel sound. I probably, some of you may have not noticed it, and now that's all you'll think about this entire episode. So bad on me for calling it out for everyone to here at the beginning of the episode. Um, I want to thank uh, Alec for the lovely email about the Lucy Davis episode. I want to thank Ashley. Uh, I'm very excited about your upcoming trip to Moscow, your move to Moscow, I should say. Uh, James M., I'm still going through your delightful fan mail package. So good. Um, Starbuck, uh, thank you for your email. Um, on Aussie, the uh, Michelle was kind enough to send me um, some comments from the Australian iTunes feedback, which I can't see on my end of things. As many of you know, I am located in the United States of America. So I wanted to thank Washi, Kaylee, Tegan, and then of course, Jules and Michelle, who uh, weighed in early and are uh, my two dear uh south of the world. God, guys, and I can't start over now. I can't start over. I've already said too much. So this intro has to continue, even though I just said south of the world when I was trying to talk about Australia and New Zealand. In New Zealand. Um, shame on me. Shame on me. Unprofessional to the death. Natalie and Terry, so excited to meet you up at Bridgetown, which brings me to reminding everyone that if you are around the Portland area or you know anyone who is, I am doing a live JV Club podcast from the Bridgetown Comedy Festival on Sunday, April 21st at 6 p.m. at the Baghdad Theater. Uh, go to bridgetowncomedy.com for more information. I think tickets are $15. I'll be joined by Natasha Legero and the marvelous Karen Kilgariff, who is a really great um, musician in addition to being an extraordinary writer and comic. So I'm really excited to have her and to have some music on the show. Um, and obviously that will be an episode that will be available to download in the future. Uh, Stig, I want to thank you for your New Zealand recommendations for my upcoming trip to New Zealand. Jeffrey Kay on Facebook. Thank you. Uh, so many comments on Emily's Nerdist page that um, I just wanted to tell you guys I left individual responses there. Um, there are so many of you. I'm not going <clears> to <throat> go into it on this email, but I did leave uh, responses for you on that page. Thank you so much. It was so fun to get so many comments on the Nerdist page. Um, And uh, I think Emily being uh, the guest had a lot to do with that. So very cool. 
I want to thank from the Lucy Nerdist page, PJ, Christy, Michael, H. Scoppy, and my sweet jewels. Uh, I want to thank from Facebook, Jacinta, a new listener. Uh, welcome, welcome. I want to thank Jenny for posting um, uh, Pets of the Tudors link, which I think she's going to post on the public side of Facebook as well, which answers um, Emily's query about whether or not she was crazy about hot dogs in a very definitive way. It sounds like the Tudors used a lot of hot dogs as warmers. Um, uh, Karen, why thank you for your thank you on Facebook, um, Kanan and the, those of you who have given me some ideas for, um, this new idea of little advice section on the podcast. I'm still working on that, but I think it's terrific. I love your suggestions. I'm looking at those. We're still also figuring out the t-shirt design. It's looking right now like it's probably going to be this smile, smile with the braces and maybe the JV club maybe on the back of the t-shirt. We're still figuring that out, but thank you so much for weighing in guys. And those t-shirts are on uh, Facebook. If you want to continue to weigh in, um, and we'll hopefully find one and put it in production soon. Uh, Victoria, thank you for helping me with that. Ben V, thank you for listing the, uh, Pajiba link that has me for some ridiculous reason at the top of a list of uh, people that, uh, these guys have, uh, podcast crushes on. I, I don't really know what to say about that other than, um, I couldn't be in better company. That was really excited. I have crushes on all the people that I was listed with. So fantastic. Uh, Darcy, I definitely going to check out five summers, the sassy curmudgeons upcoming young adult book. I uh, encourage you guys to do the same. Chris W on and Norbert on Twitter. I'm very behind on Twitter guys, but I I'm having that thing where I'm gonna have to go back and look at old tweets because I'm so behind with Cora, um, comments that come in that I am now, uh, overall just like, can't even get those old tweets to load. So I got to go into that special place where I could see them. Artemis James M. Uh, I already shouted you out, but Rusty, thank you guys for your emails. And, um, that was endless. That's a really, really endless intro. That was five minutes, 47, 48, 49, 550. That's a really long intro guys. Uh, thanks for hanging in and, um, please enjoy this episode with Susan Orlean. I am a, a very, very big fan of hers and, uh, I couldn't feel more lucky that she agreed to do the podcast. She's extraordinary. So please enjoy it. And, um, yep. 607, 608, 609, longest intro in the history of the JV club. Bless your hearts for listening. Now entering nerdist.com. Right. This is the first thing that I'm going to say about uh, about my guest for this week, other than her marvelous name, Susan Orlean, um, is that uh, you don't know this, but I was at a screening of adaptation um, in San Francisco right before the film came out as part of New Yorker Nights. I don't know ah, if that rings a bell to you, yes. but you were present. And still uh, in a state of shock. I'm, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, you were there and, um, I, I actually, I was very excited that you were there. I'm trying to remember who else was there. I guess probably a du- like director producer team or something. Yeah. Was actually, it, but... was it Charlie Kaufman? Charlie, and Charlie was Jones? there. Yeah. You know yeah. what? Charlie and Spike were both there. For yeah. a second, I thought there's no way Charlie would have been there, but now I remember that he was there and that, it felt a little bit like 
he didn't want to answer any questions. Yes. Which is understandable. And I, I would, if I were him, if I were he, listen, I don't know. I, but my father was an English teacher and every time I make a grammatical error, I feel completely that it, ashamed. He, right. And that I've besmirched him somehow <laughs> by thinking, being his where progeny. did I go wrong? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he seemed like super reticent and kind of, I, I just remember thinking, I, if I were him and I were doing the kind of work he does, I probably wouldn't want to come to a Q&A because people were asking really specific questions about his process and stuff. Yeah. And he just seemed like he was like, don't ask me that. Please stop that. All right. Here's what's going on with that. Um, something is going on where Scott is, uh, Susan's son, Austin is here. Scott, I'm going to put you outside. Scott is the, everyone knows that Scott enjoys barking when he hears noises he doesn't understand. That's all fine. But something's going on where, although he's been walked by many a neighborhood child, up to and including the Odenkirk's uh, son and daughter, there's something about Austin being here in the house, and I don't, unfortunately, as much as I enjoy having kids here and friends with children, often parents are like, I don't want to bring my kids, or I wouldn't want to, or I've got the sitter, and... So I don't think he gets to be around kids that much inside here, and I think he doesn't really know what to make of it. I well, think, maybe he thinks it's a small, hairless dog. I mean, there's a little bit of like, uh, he. I, I think he doesn't, his dog brain is trying to understand mm-hmm. Austin's right. size. Who are you? What are you? Yeah. And where's your tail? A little bit, yeah, I think. That could be. And, so, and, and we've left Austin to his own devices, specifically to uh, open and uh, hang out with a, a Star Wars ad at that I recently recently received. Um, and I think that Scott is like a little distrustful. Like perhaps he thinks that Austin is in your his new dog turf and <laughs> my new happy dog. <laughs> it's your new You're dog. You're going to take Austin yeah. with you when you leave, right? Or is no, this, no. Uh, actually, I, I, I was pranked? thinking, yeah, Surprise, trick or treat. Thank now you. you. Get to decide. Trick and treat. Yeah. He seems like a very delightful young man. He is. He's an excellent um, one. But, uh, but so yeah, no, so, I'm not going to leave him. Okay, I'm not. Well, I appreciate. I thought about it. No. Scott, you gotta you gotta settle down, or I'm going to put you outside. There's some ad at noises that he's not sure about. Um, so good boy, stay. So I so I have seen I have been in a room with you before, albeit a very large one. Um, I remember that night, and I recall that I was surprised. Also surprised that uh, Charlie was part of it, although they, he and Spike, of course, were very invested in the movie and wanted it to do well. And they did a number of events in the beginning to help promote it. But I would say Charlie's favorite mode is not Q&A, yeah. or at least not A. He might be good at Q. <laughs> and I also think... You know, that's, I, I feel like I, uh, these guys know I run a comedy festival in San Francisco and we do a lot of, um, panels, a lot of Q and A's, things like that. We did something, I remember doing something, we did a, we did a true story screening with David Byrne and more, more in that event than it really any other we've done. I remember because I look up to him so much, I remember feeling that sort of shame and embarrassment that, 
only a producer can feel about people that they have no responsibility for, which is to say that we were getting these really stupid questions from the audience. And I was so ashamed, like embarrassed of my city. Like, oh, don't ask that. That makes us all look bad. Yeah. And I think there were a few of those at that screening too, where the sort of, you know, the people in the audience that probably were too afraid to even ask a question because they wanted to seem like too cool for school. Right. Then were embarrassed by people who were very happy to ask weird questions. And yeah. everyone was like, you don't do that. Then they'll think we're all stupid. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the Q&A process with an audience where they're not pre-screened is an incredible game of Russian roulette. <laughs> and I yeah. actually, what's, I mean, I've been on the other end of it where I remember with my first book, which is called Saturday Night, and it was a a literary nonfiction. Well, it's sort of like this American life in a way. I mean, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's very much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's really what it in fact, I should talk to them and see if they rip me off. Yeah, you should probably see. litigate. This yeah. is America. <laughs> I, really, I see my payday. Um, so I did a radio call-in show early on on my book tour. And the first question I got was, I'm going out in uh, on Saturday night in Long Island. Do you know any good restaurants? And I thought, oh my God, what, you know, really I, I had a, a sort of dark moment of the soul thinking <laughs> what on earth, what, I and, know. and did you answer? Cause I, it's really hard for me in the comedy world in general, I think to not just light into somebody. I have learned, yeah. I've learned, actually I was told, um, early on that you never have to answer the question you were asked. You answer the question you just well, decide to make it into. Yeah. And the fact is that it's rare that a person who asks you will then say, Hey, wait a minute. You didn't answer my question. Yeah. Because they, you know, They're and also you can be cut engaged. them off and yeah. move on to the next question. So in a case like that, you can say, Oh, that's so interesting. You know, 90% of Americans go out to dinner on Saturday night and don't go out the rest of, you know, and just start, sort of blabbing about right. what you, you know, and, and make some kind of success out of a <laughs> terrible moment. The worst time ever was when I was interviewed by a, a talk show host who was essentially senile and oh, also, no. I might add, blind. So oh. the fact of him being a book um, show host was sort of amazing. But I had um, just published a um, collection of called My Kind of Place. It was basically not travel stories, but stories in which place played a large role. Yeah. So his first question to me, and I'm not kidding, was, so Susan, they say diamonds are a girl's best friend. What's a man's best friend? And I thought, uh. I'm... what. What planet is this being beamed from? Was and, he, and is that just him trying to think of something that you wouldn't have been asked before? Like, I'm really going to break this. I'm going to think outside of the box in a big way. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, aye, I, aye, I, aye. I don't know. I was utterly flabbergasted and I, I had to scramble. I, I just, do you remember I what you said? Do. I don't remember what I said. All I remember was that feeling, that kind of cold, 
clutch at my heart. Oh, no. And it was, by the way, live radio. So Of course it was. I, I just, and I didn't want to embarrass him. He was a, an older gentleman, and I, yeah. I didn't want to say, you know, what kind of fool question is that? Yeah. You'd have to be blind to ask a question. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, really. Oops. Yeah. So I don't remember now what I said. All I know is that I, I fumbled around trying to think, okay, what's the, what's the, and it's supposed to be some bone, I can, like I, it's supposed to be some bone move, you know, because you're I, an, you were an author, so yeah, you should be able like to just man, turn man. out like Oscar Wilde phrases, you know, yeah, just well, on a dime. Yeah, Di- diamonds are a girl's best friend. So rubies? I, no, I don't a, know. A baseball diamond. Yeah, is a guy's best oh, friend. Yeah, na, 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 that is comedy. Yeah. Oh, uh, shoot. Listen, it's I wish, hindsight. I had I plenty could. of time to think about my answer just now. <laughs> no, that was a that was a stumper. Yeah. I, I would say that was probably the most challenging question I've ever been asked. Here's something that I feel like I noticed in interviewing people, uh, particularly on HuffPost Live. I feel because, because a lot of those people are really Caesar. I remember interviewing, um, the dog whisperer. What's his name? Caesar. Caesar Milan. Caesar Milan. And every single question that anyone else asked him, because as you may or may not know, what we do is sort of have these community members who are also asking questions directly to, uh, the celebrity or expert or whoever. And, uh, and every single question that got asked, his first response to that question was, that's a really good question. <laughs> and then he would continue to answer yeah, it. To, so he would give himself I'm a wondering. Minute. I'm wondering if it's like, let me give myself know. time it's or funny. if it's just a way of rewarding. Or yeah. if it is like, my intention, by the way, will not be to answer your stupid question. I'm going right. to answer I'm it with just, an answer yeah. that I want. But here's me rewarding you for asking it. It's very funny, though, because once my husband said to me, you tell people too often that they've asked you a good question. And I thought... I guess it is, on one hand, you want to say, um, even if you think it's a really stupid question, you want to say, I I acknowledge your effort in coming up with this question, yeah. and I'm stalling to try to think, how on earth can I answer this <laughs> stupid question? Because I would say there's an inverse uh, ratio between how good the question is and the person saying that's a good question. Okay. Chances right. are... That means that's really not a good question, oh, and I've got to figure out how to make uh, you know, something I, out that, of this. That makes me sad because I just did this panel for – I do a, a cartoon on Nickelodeon, and I just did this panel um, for fans in Houston, and I feel like I only said it when I sincerely was <gasps> dazzled by a question. Oh. When some, you know, if someone I, says, you know, da 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 for sure I would say it when I didn't have an immediate answer. But nine times out of ten, the reason that I didn't have an immediate answer was it was a very interesting, kind of provocative question that yeah. I wanted to maybe I did wish I had more time for you or just something, but unmasked me as a, a total fraud. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say I'm probably exaggerating a little bit. Yeah. I I alternate. Sometimes I say that's a great question when I think, whoa, that's not a good question. I've got to think of how to answer in an interesting way. Yeah. And other times where somebody has asked me something genuinely interesting where I have to stop and think, wow, I haven't thought about that before. Yeah. Let, me, let me give that some thought. That is a good question. I so mean, you're right. I'm I'm exaggerating. But that's kind of also part of just our social construct is that, you know, we are going to say the same things when we mean them as we are sometimes when we don't, right. which makes 
people nervous in business and in social environments. And that's why people talk about sometimes somebody who doesn't have a quote unquote filter or someone who doesn't censor themselves, like being somehow refreshing because you actually feel like you're getting what yeah. you sign, you know, you're, you yeah. know, you're hearing the truth, whatever that means. Right. And I think also part of the exchange is just to say, thank you for thinking of asking a good question. And I'm just going to kind of give you your just desserts and say, you know, good for you for yeah. standing up and asking. But, um, sincerity is, um, I think, um, I won't say it's in short supply. That's, that's extreme. But I think in, in a social setting, your first obligation is to acknowledge that you don't plan to kill the other person. (laughs) It's just, yeah, let's just make it clear. I'm not carrying any weapons. I'm not going to eat you. Correct. And you in return are saying, you know, great. I come in peace. I also will not eat you. Uh And then you continue. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. It'd be very interesting to belong to a society a la Mad Max where you actually would have to say those words and not just intimate that you're not going to, but right. someone would require you to say, no, I'm really not going to kill and eat you. Yeah. Let's just, continue talking. Yeah. I'm really not going to exactly. verbalize it. Um, well, one of the things that uh, made me so excited about finding out that, guys, the reason that Susan has uh, graciously decided to do this podcast is in 100% part to our mutual friend, uh, Abe Foreman-Greenwald, who I have talked about on the podcast before because his lovely wife, Lynn Chen, was a past guest. Um, and... Uh, uh, something that I think he appreciates so much about you, which is why I am a fan as well, is that you have, and guys, for those of you who aren't necessarily as familiar with Susan stuff, um, she does write for the New Yorker. I know I have a lot of very savvy, very intellectual listeners. So I'm sure many of you already know, uh, many of you are, uh, cinema fans. Um, you're probably most widely famous for being the character upon which the Meryl Streep role was based by the same name as Charlie Kaufman is wont to do. Um, and, but your, but your books and, uh, stories, I'm interested in people big time. And obviously you are too. Right. So I would, I would like to try to get to the bottom of, I mean, obviously there's no, there's no really simple answer to this, but I'd love to hear about, I know that you are from Cleveland, right? Right. Um, and that you went to school in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So could you paint a picture for us about what your, um, you know, I like to kind of start in adolescence um, and just throw around kind of what your, what your environment was like as you were kind of shaping yourself and being shaped at that time um, and how that kind of, I don't know, turned into you being a prolific and fantastic writer. Uh, well, thank you. So and now I'll, now I'll say, and that's go. a good question. It's <laughs> like a paragraph of a question. Yeah, I know. It's, a, um, it's interesting because you sort of wonder at what point you start becoming who you are. And I think especially having a kid, you you see it happening before your very eyes. So it's also interesting because you think, is what this little kid is like now, how, how does that turn into an adult? As an adolescent, you know, I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland. It was a really 
traditional, I had a pretty traditional kind of upbringing in, I have one brother, one sister. Um, or where do you fall? I'm the youngest. Okay. And uh, we lived in a suburb that had a great educational system and a lot of, uh, the community was very involved in the schools. From the time I can even begin to remember, I was also a, a huge reader and a library, you know, bookworm. We would go to the library all the time. But I think more to the point, from the time I was little, I loved the idea of stories. Mm. Everything was a story. Every Everything had the potential to be a story. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, some of it is just some, you know, your DNA aligns in a certain way and that's who you turn out to be. But at the same time, I think it was very much encouraged by my parents who would be more likely to say, this is an interesting street we've never driven down before. Let's go down here. Or the thing that I remember from being a kid is there was a beautiful house in near where I, my house was. And every time I would drive by that house with my, my mom, I would say, Oh, you know, I just, that's my, my dream house. It's so beautiful. I wonder what it's like inside. And one day my mother slowed down and stopped and said, just go knock on the door and introduce yourself and tell the people that you love their house and you've always wondered what it looked like inside and see if they'll let you in. I think that's huge. That's a huge telling point. I think you're absolutely right. And I literally, and it's not that my mom walked me to the door. I got out of the car and I was probably mm, 12, 13, something like that. Yeah. Knocked on the door, the woman whose house it was, you know, opened the door and I explained myself and she said, well, of course. And I mean, she didn't give me a huge tour of the house, but she invited me to come in and walk into the, it was a very grand house actually. As a matter of fact, it was in a Johnny Walker black label ad. Oh, that's funny. I mean, it was really a quite a spectacular house. It was a a show house in that way also that someone besides you probably had that feeling. Yeah. But it was, um, that was always part of my life as a kid that you would look around a corner that nobody else had looked into or you, you just learned about things. Sure. That that was in itself a great value. And my, um, when I was growing up, there were riots in Cleveland. It was the time of great white flight. And we lived in, you know, one of those white flight suburbs. And yet, and it was a time when most of the families I knew would never have gone to downtown Cleveland. It was, you know, it's scary. There are riots going on. We don't want to go down there. My dad one day said, um, you know, get on your coats, kids. We're going to drive downtown and we're, we're going to drive around where the riots were. Cause I want you to see what is going on and why, people are perhaps doing this. What did your dad do, if you don't mind my asking, and your mom if she worked? Uh, My dad was a real estate developer, and um, he actually built a lot of low-income housing, and as well as 
single family houses and so forth. But I think his feeling is, let's go see what this is all about. Instead of, of course, when I tell that story, sometimes I think, God, you know, here my dad was sticking us in the car and driving down to, (laughs) to the middle of the riots. The riots were over. Yeah. I would like to point out my father wasn't putting us in danger. Of course. But he was saying, let's find out what this is all about. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just so impressed by that because uh, during that time, he easily, of course, and I'm sure many parents did, try to insulate their kids and just say, you don't need to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> like that. And we'll know, never go downtown and, and it's scary yeah. and it's not. And, you know, it was the, the, the beginning of the end for a lot of cities downtowns was that period of time because people just said, Oh my God, I don't want anything to do with that. And mm-hmm. we'll never go back down there. That wasn't the, um, you had asked my dad was a real estate developer. My mom, when I was young, my mom worked part-time in a bank, but she was really a mom, a, mainly a, not a stay at home mom, but primarily. Well, three kids. That's uh, plenty. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, know how my friends would one do it. I don't know how you do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know. So I think that when I look at who I am now, and I don't mean just work, I mean as a person, sure. um, because I don't see a huge distinction between what I do in my work life and what I do in my life life. Uh, I, I, Look at that and think that's really where it began. This feeling that you should learn about everything and then you can decide. Well, you might later then say, well, I don't want to live in downtown Cleveland because it's, um, you know, ugly or scary or whatever. But that, but to at least know. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's funny because, um, timing wise, this conversation is interesting me in particular because I, am. Listen, I'd be bored stiff, Susan, if I weren't just about right. to tell you what I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> I'm no, but sorry. I'm just I'm just revisiting um, Outliers. I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. Um, uh, I think he's so accessible, guys. Uh, some of the fans of the podcast have started a JV book club, so now oh, I try to shout out excellent. when there are books that I'm talking about. Um, I think it goes without saying, but I will say again that Susan's uh, should all be on the list. Um, but uh, but. Blink and and uh, Tipping Point and Outliers, um, and what was the other the things the dog said something like uh, right book of uh, essays. I do love a book of essays. She said pointing to Susan Orlean's book. Um, uh, really make accessible. I don't know, just you know, mathematical and social trends and how those two things come together. And Outliers is such an interesting yeah. book, and 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 I was specifically just. I was just listening to it while I was riding my bike this morning. Um, the chapter about specifically about kids and about um, upbringing and schools and low income versus middle class kids and the way parents, I mean, it's exactly what you just said, but the way these patterns emerge, wherein a lot of low income families um, are so deferential to authority that they inadvertently don't teach their kids that it's okay to stand up for yourself or to ask questions. Uh, he gives an example of when you go to the doc, you know, a child who goes to the doctor who feels mm. comfortable with this stern authority figure being able to say, and when the doctor says, do you have any questions for me? That that child doesn't just kind of turn the other way and go, no, and says, actually, yes, I da 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 da, you know, in sort of the way they've been socialized uh, yeah. with respect to authority and the way that they learn in schools that, um, that 
there's something that tends to happen in lower income families where the parents just aren't as engaged and maybe aren't, maybe don't stand up for their kids or teach their kids to kind of pull that learning out more or be more, have it be more of this mutual thing. I don't know. Well, I think that, you know, as a parent, you realize that there's, there, there are the things that you explicitly try to teach your kids. And then there's the stuff they really learn from you, which is the, your behavior, your attitude towards the world. And, you know, it's not consistent. Kids process things differently in a family of three siblings. They will turn out very differently as my brother and sister and I did, except you, you do imprint on those unconscious ways of being in the world. And I think that that's sort of that feeling that you're entitled to say to a doctor, you know, actually I have a question about why yeah. and entitlement gets such a bad rap, but that you aren't that that there would be that your mom, I mean just specifically that your mom said, "You know what? That yes, that house is much nicer than ours. We don't have that kind of money, but you're a good kid, you're a curious kid." Go knock on the door. Go knock on the door and And be polite and and let's see what happens. Scott. And also... I'm going to put you outside, I swear. uh, um, The idea that if you don't try it, you'll never know if... I mean, the worst thing that can happen is someone can say, "Um, sorry, we don't let strange little kids into the front door. Right. So that feeling that you're entitled to just ask questions and it's okay as long as you're polite and people can say, no, I do not wish to accede to your request. No, nothing ventured, nothing, nothing gained. And I do think that when I look at who I am now, there, those motifs in growing up, you know, along with a lot of other great, you know, the kinds of things that are wonderful to get from families, a lot of interesting travel, a lot of encouragement for the values of um, education and all that stuff that mattered, of course, a lot to me. But when I think of how did I turn into this person and not a different kind of person, I really look at that. And from both of my parents, my father was much more of the adventurous one and much more of the one we'd go on a vacation to some very typical resort kind of place. And my dad would be the one saying, let's run a car and go like find the other stuff that's not in the little resort, you know, gated resort. My mom was somewhat less that way, but, but even so within you know, the parameters of who she was in her generation, she was pretty game to yeah. say, yeah, let's go check that out. Yeah. Or um, never hurts to ask. And yeah. that was always kind of the tone. I think that not only fostered curiosity, but made me feel like it was a really good quality and that it was a, the way of being in the world that would never fail you and you could occasionally hit a brick wall. But other than that, well, you just then turn and try to go around the wall. Yeah. Who knows what's over the wall or behind the wall? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also being interested in 
people of every stripe. And that also, I look to my parents as a great model that, that they of course had their social group that they were very involved with, but they always were open to the idea of talking to the woman working at the cash register at the drugstore or, you know, the, the whole range of humanity and, and not just saying that's not our kind of person. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, this comes up for me a lot, but I don't think I've brought it up on the podcast before, but one of my favorite, um, moments, particularly when I was a teenager, cause this movie got me through some hard times, but in Harold and Maude is when Harold, you know, sort of looks on Maude interacting with the world and says, you're really good with people. And she says, well, they're my species. Yeah. You know, there's That's this so sort funny. of adorable curiosity and, and, I think I think curiosity, but also affection. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a, a very affectionate curiosity for someone like you to want to puzzle through these stories of people's lives or to understand, you know, why people do what they do or maybe never understand it, but be fascinated by yeah. it. And it doesn't mean that I feel like everybody is like me or we're all big one, hap- one big happy family. It's not naivete as much as um, being... Uh, it's like tasting all the food at a buffet and sure. feeling like oh, there's some you're not going to like and some you're going to like, but when you're done, you can say, well, great. I tasted everything. And I, I learned that something that looks uh, gelatinous and red tastes sweet, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. And the, there's inherent value in just learning about something or someone I've, been asked a lot, especially when I teach, students will say, well, your stories are very nonjudgmental. How do you, how do you make them nonjudgmental? And I, my answer is, first of all, I say, that's a good question. No, I, <laughs> I'm really going to have yeah, to think about that yeah, one. Class give dismissed. Me a, give me, yeah. Give me a minute. A plus. And no, I just say, well, because I'm nonjudgmental. It's mm. not this, it's not a, like a mask that you put on or a filter that you yeah. turn on to then write. Yeah, and I think that um, there are probably many ways to be a writer, but I think to be the kind of writer I am, you have to come with a pretty authentic curiosity to know who people are. And again, this isn't to say I like everybody. And that's the thing I've often said. Don't mistake this for me being a person who doesn't have opinions or strong feelings but I am definitely non-judgmental in saying you do something weird that I find initially kind of strange, but now my task is to try to figure out why you do that and f- explain it to me because I find it really weird and strange. That's a version of non-judgmental openness that feels comfortable to me. It doesn't mean that you deny your response. Like I wrote a piece about children's beauty pageants. Mm-hmm. Of course, my that was the most judgmental sound I could possibly make. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. And you know, a lot of people at the New Yorker were somewhat mystified by why I would want to write about them. And I said, well, look, I, we all have such a strong reaction to it. 
But have you ever talked to anybody who's in one or know anything about it? I mean, my biggest fear of my own uh, judgment is that I don't know. I, that, uh, the Reagan doc, just to side derail, because that's all we ever do on the podcast here. Uh, <laughs> it, but for a second, in, in thinking about, for example, the, the Reagan documentary, I think it was an HBO documentary. Uh-huh. And they talked about how he was so malleable that you could put him in a room with one group of people and he would walk away agreeing with them. And then the next day you could turn around. I'm paraphrasing wildly, but put him into a room with another group of people and he would end up feeling that way. And people uh, as a politician, I mean that one could argue that there's like the risk of that flip flopping with, you know, with a politician period, just because of an agenda. But I was really uncomfortable when they started talking about that because I thought to myself, uh-oh, I'm very empathetic and I feel like I have that quality and I don't necessarily set out in a day to, you know, compare right. myself to Ronald Reagan, but I and think that if I, I sit down, do you? I do enjoy so jelly weird. beans a yeah. great deal. It's so weird. I mean, I, mean, I didn't want to bring it up, but, uh, but you know, it's out. That, but you know what I'm saying? Like that yeah. I'm, I'm so interested in people's points of view and their motivations for doing it that I, I almost worry that I could be in a children's beauty pageant environment for long enough that I would start to think Stockholm syndrome. Like, oh, this yes, is okay. So you know awesome. What? Yeah. This is these kids. Listen, they love their kids. They just love them in a different way than I would love. Right. Them. You know but what I'm saying? I, you know what? I, I, I think that that's a function. The fact is that that does happen, that you get into a world, into a subculture. It is, you know, it's standards and myths and, um, guideposts are all around you and you are subsumed by it. But the difference is you step out of it and then you have some objectivity and you sit down as a writer and you think, okay, all right. I was, while I was in there, I felt like I could really get the logic of why this meant something. And now I'm back outside of it again, a little bit of arm's length. I can tell the story about I mean, it, it actually helps you understand it. Absolutely. That's, you know, within that world, of course, if you're a New Yorker reader sitting in Manhattan, you're going to think that's the most outrageous thing I've ever seen. Mascara on a three-year-old. It's, but the fact is there is such a thing as cultural relativism. And if you live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, chances are you aren't going to be putting mascara on your three-year-old and putting her in a beauty pageant. Similarly, people who for whom that seems really natural will look at something you do and find it equally Definitely. puzzling. So, I mean, and we're just talking about American culture right now, let alone right. go across the world to Japan right, and or see some of the traditions and, and culture. Or, yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's, I do sometimes have that feeling that I'm too easily absorbed into a subculture and begin accepting it on its own terms. But I'm, I think first of all, I'm always aware that I will be leaving it and having an objective view and trying to describe it in a very genuine way. And that I'm not faking an identity with it. Um, Although I have seen one of the freakiest things that ever happened to me as a reporter is I used to like writing a lot about cults and I had gone to write about a a very large, um, it it was a huge, like 
50,000 acre ranch in Eastern Oregon that had been purchased by Bhagwan Tri Rajneesh, building a huge, uh, gigantic commune for his followers there. And there were a lot of reporters who had come out to write about it because it was very controversial for a lot of reasons. And the more time you spend there and the more people you talk to who are part of the cult saying, you know, look, it's totally awesome. It's just really great. We love it. This is how it works. It's just this really great society. And, and one assumes that those people are also not saying, listen, I'm in a cult. Right. Let me out. That can't be the word that someone is using to right. describe no. how great it I is. Mean, this you know, cult is were, wonderful. Were it's a community. Smart and, it's a community. You yeah. know, they were, it, one of the curious things was that he had a lot of followers who were very educated. They weren't people who were lost and, you know, like a lot of kids who got moonied. These were people who were, in many cases, professionals with full lives who just decided they were going to sign up. Anyway, you know, while you're in that world and you do have that Stockholm syndrome moment where you think this is reality, the other world isn't reality. Mm. This is like so fabulous. Mm. Well, what freaked me out is that several reporters joined they did. Yes. During the course, we were, there was a That's large. a pretty impressive it was magnet. Freaky. I mean, we were there for a festival. So there were, Gosh. there was a, a lot of press out there. And, you know, a, a one person I said, um, so you're just doing this for your story, right? And he said, no, th- it's really great. I feel like. There's something about Bhagwan that's really special. And I thought, you're, you're kidding. Are you serious? And another one of the reporters said to me, are you going to go through the initiation just for your story? Because there was a little ceremony that you would do. And I said, no, 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 no. Now I started thinking, oh my God, I don't yeah. know. Well, is there something in the water? <laughs> I've got to get out of here. So but that I mean, was an it, extreme. But is but a report. Listen, you could have done a whole separate story on the reporters. You could have done a story oh my God, on, yeah. on the reporters was, going into. But I do think wild. that. I mean, it seems like because of what you just described, and because of something that I mean, I feel like if I can put myself in your camp enough to be able to understand that because of what we talked about it with empathy and, and the enthusiastic curiosity is that if you are a reporter and you have that curiosity, perhaps you are also sort of a seeker. And then that's kind of can just be around the corner from, wow, here's somebody, here's, I'm a highly intellectual person, but here's an intellectualized person offering me something that still feels like an escape from whatever it is about my reality that just doesn't work for me. Well, I would counter that by saying, and I think this is very much at the heart of um, the movie adaptation, which is the, it's necessary for a writer to have that enthusiastic curiosity, but I think it's always encased in a, a very much an, a, a distance of objectivity Yeah, that you're not a seeker in the sense of thinking one of these is going to fit and I'm going to figure out, you know, that I'm, I'm curious because I, I'm looking for the thing that makes sense to mm-hmm. me. I think it's actually the opposite where you have an arm's length ability to go into a situation that can be very consuming and still keep your own identity. Yeah. And still so say, you know, were- okay, I just spent 
two weeks at an ashram, but I know I'm leaving and I can be as open to it as possible because I never worry that I'm going to lose myself. I'm not a joiner. And I think that that's probably more true that more. So that's why I was so shocked. Major aberration. Totally. Because I think that I wonder what happened to those people. I don't know. I, and I mean, that's why it was so shocking because I think most writers and observers of culture in that way are not joiners. They're the exact opposite. They look at joined communities with a certain like curiosity. Like how do, how do you do that? How do you surrender yourself to a passion like that? And of course that's what the orchid thief was about, which was me observing somebody who was, defined himself by becoming passionate about something and defining himself by that passion. I'm an orchid person. And I thought I could never identify myself in any way with one I feel the same way. Fascination. Yeah. Even though I can feel comfortable saying, here I am, you're you're in love with orchids. I can like totally get it. But then at five o'clock, I'm done. And I, I don't it doesn't go on for me. And yeah. of course I think Charlie's screenplay was saying, what if it, well, did? you know, what if it did, or does that make you an, an empty person that you can observe, but never truly surrender to, to something? Yeah. Well then that, that actually is an interesting way in for us to sort of jettison backwards. I mean, in a situation like a, like a high school setting where so much of it is kind of the socialized clumping of people and the joining can be really key and elemental in terms of how you kind of get through and how you, who you associate with and how you identify yourself. What was your, your high school experience like? Were you fiercely passionate about certain things? Were you kind of a tasting everything? Who were your friends? I, I often wonder whether my experience of high school is what everybody really thinks, which was I wasn't in one group. I floated among many. And every now and again, I think maybe everybody feels that about themselves. But it was certainly true for me. I had friends of, I probably was most identified with kids who were readers and talkers and writers and, you know, good, but not square. Yeah. Um, you know, we were the kids who were loose enough to try things that were not necessarily (laughs) entirely sanctioned, but we weren't the kids who were going to go off the deep end and get in big trouble or telling somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And that we were, uh, you know, cool enough to have boyfriends and girlfriends and, and, but not the ones who are going to suddenly get in big trouble because they were 15 and pregnant, right. you know? So right. it was, to be honest, it, it's exactly the same people I still hang out with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it really is when I think about it, you know, people who are, um, you know, not, not, hugely distant from any other kind of group, but probably defined by a certain, um, being kind of all things in moderation rather than an extreme in one way or the other. And were you, did you participate in any sports or any sort of cheer, cheerleading? Um, I was a, 
a horseback rider. That was oh, my okay. passion as a kid. And, and I was a good athlete, but I didn't do, you know, I wasn't on a team, a sports team. My family was a big tennis playing family and my brother competed actually nationally. Hmm. So we watched a lot of tennis, played a lot of tennis. I wasn't good. And I was almost resolutely not good because my brother was so good that there was no point in even really trying. So, you know, I was busy doing all of that kind of stuff. I had a boyfriend starting in, I guess, 11th grade, Mm -hmm. but I had a lot of friends who were boys too. I wasn't a kind of, you know, boy crazy dating machine at all. I was, you know, and I was pretty innocent. I mean, when I got to college, I had a big wake up of suddenly realizing that I just, that there was a a much bigger, the margins were a lot bigger than Mm -hmm. I realized because I was a, I was a good girl and not like a dork, but just (laughs) a good kid and, and not particularly rebellious and not um, not wild, but not square. If mm-hmm. that makes some sense, were, yeah, no, no, no. Those were most of my front and like the first two years of my high school experience and into the third, I should say, I was definitely hanging out with very, very smart, but very, you know, like the drugs and the this and the sneaking out and the stealing and all that kind of stuff. And then the last part of my high school experience, I was definitely more part of a community of kids who were like, eh, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? There just wasn't, nobody was too pure, but there just wasn't a whole, but, but it didn't feel like I spent the first part of my high school. I think one of the key words would probably be anger. Honestly, I think I spent a lot of time with really angry kids early on. And then later I just sort of found, you know, a group that wasn't even a group to your point of, of just like people were sort of by the end, I guess I just wanted to be around well-adjusted people because I felt like I had adjusted myself in some way that I couldn't, wouldn't have been able to see at the time. Well, I think, um, angry and, or, I mean, when I think of the, what I, I was not self-destructive and I think a lot of kids in high school, um, I mean, my school in general was largely kids who were pretty positive and, and going to sort of do well, but there are a lot of kids who are self-destructive and, kind of on a mission to be in trouble. And I was never that kid, but I, I didn't, I also think being a youngest kid has a huge impact on who I am. Mm. I, I'm a great believer whether the evidence is there or not. I'm not interested in science. Um, <laughs> I think birth order is a always, I always determinant. ask my guess because I'm so, and I'm an only you child. Have, you're so I'm only? fascinated by sibling relationships because I have no yeah working knowledge, no practical knowledge, and experiential knowledge at all whatsoever about it. Well, I think it it makes a gigantic difference. And in my family, we almost stick like absolutely to the you're description of it. Yeah, and I had. You know, at the time, by the time I was in high school, first of all, I was home alone because my brother and sister were already in college. 
my parents were a lot looser with me than they were with my brother and sister. I did stuff that my brother and sister wouldn't have done or even asked to do. Yeah. And I was more often alone with my parents. You know, my brother being the oldest was alone with my parents when he was an infant. Right. I mean, I was the only one who was home alone with them as a teenager and had a more mature relationship with them and also more freedom. I mean, I used to say, oh, by the time I was that age, my parents had sort of, uh, ah, whatever, go. It's not quite true. My parents were fairly strict, but a lot sure, less so with me. And I think also because my parents are were pretty traditional, they were a lot more... They were a lot looser in what they expected from me and my sister than from my brother, who got the full brunt of all of the firstborn boy Mm -hmm. stuff. But I really, and I think that my willingness to take on a profession that is kind of a gamble and required a lot of... um independence is definitely a youngest child thing. Yeah. And taking that risk of thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't, but I'm going to try it. I, there's no way that my brother or sister would have done that. Why is everything coming back to that motherfucking you walking up to the door and knocking, but everything feels like it makes sense. That's such a great anecdote. Have you told that before? Because it's so perfect to me. I mean, it's such a perfect metaphor, even for what you, what you just described with your profession. Like you essentially walked up to the door, you know, you essentially walked up to, oh, I don't know, the door of, hi, I'd like to be a writer. This is hard and I don't really, there's a lot of people are really intimidated by this, but I'm just, I'm going to knock and see if they open up and let me in. I I never thought of that before. such a great metaphor. And what's also funny to extend the metaphor is that's what I do every day of my work life, which is to knock on a door and say How to do people, you I would like to write about your yeah. world. Let I me in. subconscious absolutely knew to just spit that out That's as so like funny. this gorgeous representation of everything that was to come. Honestly, I'm, I, it's extraordinary. And it, it, it is funny because I think many, many people would drive by a house that they liked and in a million years... It never would have question. said, I'm not going to knock on the door and just say, Hey, you know, can I see, I love your house without question. And, and I give my parents credit, my mom, a huge amount of credit for saying, whatever, go, of course, go try it. And getting the reward of having someone say how, well, sure. Come on in. I mean, who knows how much influence that had on me. I mean, I remember it so vividly, you know, just so vividly. I even remember, you know, where my mom pulled over on the road and, and me walking up the long driveway by myself, but feeling like, you know, having this confidence of thinking, oh, this is exciting. Um, I'm going to oh, just love it. see what the inside of this is like. So you're right. I've never oh, thought of that it. before, but I think that is almost the the 
perfect double metaphor for for who I am. Oh my gosh. I'm so into it. Okay. First of all, I want to say that my podcasts have been running way longer than an hour, but I I want to be respectful of Austin who probably was told an hour and we are at 52 minutes. I have uh, a couple of things that I... (laughs) I'm slightly reluctant, yet I'm excited to have you do, um, because you may be my most esteemed guest, uh, in terms of someone that I've had, you know, I didn't ask Connie Chung to do this as an example, because I wasn't doing it back then. Okay. If I had been doing it back then, I still would have made her do it. But, um, I have two, uh, adolescent related, um, games that I like to play with my guests at the end. One of them involves a fortune teller. I don't know if you I, remember yes, these. Yes, I love I don't those. know how long they've been around. I remember them from when I was younger, which is why I yeah, came I up remember with the idea we used to make these. them. Yeah, but I never knew what it was called. So, um, but some people call it a fortune teller. Some people call it a cootie catcher. Um, I think I so uh, so. I'll first have you select one of these four things. Blue. Okay. B L U E, and then a number. Five. One, two, three, four, five. This goes on unnecessarily long. Three. One, two, three, and last one. Uh, five. Okay. The question under five is, describe your most regrettable fashion choice. <gasps> oh, God. There have been many. Um, this, that's a great question. Victoria, one of the uh, fans and, and uh I'm going to call her a producer of the podcast because she volunteers her time for so many different things. Made that. I, this is brand new, a brand new one. So I didn't Ooh, know that question was there. This is the oh. first time I'm hearing it. First time, guys. Uh, well, I would say I've had a couple of really bad haircuts. Um, that's not exactly a fashion choice. I think it is. Would you? Sure. Okay. I mean, if the implication is just clothing, but like fashion, how yeah. you wear your hair is absolutely a part of that. Yeah. Well, I would say the the worst I've ever looked in my life, um, and in a way, I'm being unkind to myself, but I had mono between my freshman and sophomore year in college. Mm. And unlike a lot of people who have mono and hang out and get sort of pa- pale and Victorian and... <laughs> And slim. I I spent the entire summer lying in bed eating chocolate pudding, which was the only thing I was in the mood for. So I came out of having mono quite chubby. (laughs) And my hair, because I really had a bad case of mono and my hair was in terrible shape. So I got it cut fairly short. And I really look terrible. And I had a (laughs) really super hot boyfriend at the time. Uh And when I got back to college, I look at pictures of myself now and I think that poor man. I mean... Did he stay by you? uh, He did. Um, (laughs) I'm sure he had some real regrets about it. Did he start calling you Puddin'? Uh, Probably under his breath. Uh There's one picture of me from that period where I was, I'd gone to the Grand Canyon with my brother and sister and we were sort of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and there I am with this horrible short haircut that just, it was terrible, fat, wearing some really hideous t-shirt, jeans with like a wide belt (laughs) that 
only emphasize my chubby stomach. And I mean, I just, I've, I've never looked worse in my life. I really hope thing. you can find this the picture because thing. now everyone was no, going to see it. And I do need a picture of you from your I'll youth find at one. least. So. I'll find one. Okay. But I, uh, the good thing is that I can look at that and say, I have bottomed out. <laughs> I mean, it's all uphill oh, from pudding. there. Uh, let's hope. Oh, pudding. <laughs> oh, that's a great answer. Um, oh, that God. definitely yeah. falls in the category. That's not even a fashion choice. choice. It was a fashion period. Period yeah. of horribleness. Yeah, a fashion development <laughs> that then lasted. <sighs> um, okay, then the second thing that I do, and this is a little more time consuming, um, is uh, we play a game of mash. Now that is uh, a game by which um, I determine your fictitious future. Okay. Um, I'm going to read you, uh, I'm going to give you some categories and you fill them in with three things because by process of elimination, I'm going to end up with just one in each category. Oh, so, okay. um, I don't know if you've ever played this, but, uh, typically, you know, when you're, when you, when we were young, um, my friends and I would play it where it would just be like a boy that, you, you know, three boys that you would want to marry, three pets you'd want to have, three cars you'd like to drive. But on the JV club, we like to shake it up a little bit. We like to tailor them. I didn't give any thought to this because I never know what's going to happen on the podcast either. So I never planned these out in advance. But um, uh, but I'm going to start out by asking, I mean, this is sort of, this is definitely a, a Susan-specific question, but why don't we start out with three uh, walks of life that you've not yet written about or experienced, but that are floating in your head I mean, I don't want you to give away your ideas, but are mm-hmm. there three places or types of people that you would be interested in uh, following up on and writing about that you haven't yet? Um, yes, I'd like to write about India, where I've also never been. Okay. Um, I'm very curious about... Um, I'm just trying to think because I have to skip over the ones that are actual yeah. active yeah, stories. Yeah, I totally get it. Um, I mean, this could be like so incredibly unlikely. Yeah. You could be like, listen, I wish that I could write about what goes on underwater. I wish I could oh, write about okay. fish, but I'm not going to become a scuba diver. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, seriously, or I've always or- thought it would be fascinating, though this will never happen, to write about white supremacists Yep, just because it's too intense and scary. Um, and I would say, um, being able, we were talking about this yesterday to figure out what is going on in a cat's mind. Mm -hmm. So writing, profiling a cat, cat profile. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Perfect. How about, um, three pieces of art that again, this is all crazy fantasy world. So no one's saying that you don't appreciate that Da Vinci did something mm-hmm. or that you truly wish you had. But what are three works of art that you actually you're actually responsible for? Somehow wow. you're actually responsible. Yeah. For them. Well, I mean, I think everybody understands that I did inspire the St. Louis Arch. Fantastic. So that's a big one. I, um, I did know that. Yeah. Um, I don't like to brag about this, but I, <laughs> I, um, I did design the Great Wall of China. I guess I didn't realize that was yeah. you. I know. I, I mean, I'm just, I like to be a little yeah. careful. Yeah. And, um, there's a 
paint by number of a it's a a mama deer and a baby deer no. um in the woods no you know and him that's austin hey whoa oh my gosh he just brought in the ad at scott oh stop it. my god that's now he's amazing. really doesn't now the dog really doesn't know what to do because the ad at is like the exact size and color of the dog so he's like he what is that him. creature he's thinking scott a he's thinking that's me as a robot no. No, that's wow. amazing. But well, he, he, you're you're right on the money. It's like exactly an hour. So I'm just gonna finish. I'll just do a couple more of these, and then we'll uh, send you on your way. Is that cool? Um, I'm gonna put you outside so fast, you guys. This is totally. He's completely scared of the ad at. Um, okay. Uh, oh, okay, the great paint, paint by and paint, paint by, by number numbers. of the uh, mama deer and the baby deer. I might have that in my house. Um, I think I have two deer in uh, vintage okay. paint by numbers so, from the fifties. Yeah, that's. Um, I did no. it as an as an infant. Oh yeah, I do. Hang on, just a sec. Um, Very naturalistic. Uh, this is a slice of life. It's a slice of life, and someone actually asked me to put a picture up of the room that I podcast in. But then I thought, I almost want people to just envision it with their own imaginations, based on because at various times. All, much of this room has been described in conversation by guests. People talk about the bugs. People talk about the artwork. People talk about the dog. People talk, and I kind of don't want to show people because yeah. I like the idea of people kind of just whatever they imagine is yeah. probably more interesting than what although they would it's see. such a pretty room. It would be nice to have a picture, but even better now that you've said how pretty it is. All I'm doing is reinforcing. Right the now, now that you're I am trouble. not satisfying to other people. Right. Um, how about three languages that you wish you could speak? Oh God, that's easy. Spanish, Martian. Martian is great. Austin says you can speak Spanish. Oh, uh, maybe I, I didn't even know that I know how to speak Spanish. Um, maybe you just pronounce Spanish words well. I do. I okay. do. And so I'm probably a natural. There you um, go. And I would say, uh, let's just pull one out of the air there. Um, Russian. Ooh, Russian is a very romantic language. Do you speak any languages other than, or do you, do you yeah. speak French? Are you French? French. And Italian? And, um, I don't know why I'm guessing those things. I can make do in French and... Um, I can read, but I've lost the ability to understand Hebrew, but I can okay. still read it. And um, ancient Greek. Oh, wow. I, I don't speak it, right. but I knew it at one time. So I'd like to think that I could still kind of manage. My dad has a friend who has his life's passion, not his job. He works in computers, but his hobby is that he's translating the the Iliad. Oh, God. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Um uh, okay, I'm now going to ask you, these are just ones that we've done in the past. Well, I know you're an animal lover, so how about exotic animals? Nobody's saying that it's sensible to have a chimpanzee. We all know that it's not for you and for the chimpanzee. Right. But this is a fantasy world. Okay. So how about three exotic animals you'll never have in real life for practical reasons, but that you could have in a fantasy world? Oh, uh, zebra. Great. Um... I would like a fox. Ooh, great answer. I would yeah, like a fox also. They're so, they're so cute. cute. I never see foxes. I see raccoons. I see yeah, skunks. I see coyotes. No. I never see they're, foxes. They're are there foxes very, around here? Mm, I'm sure there are, but yeah. they're probably not very common here. Right. Um, and I would say for my 
third exotic. Uh, let's have me a jaguar. Love it. Great choices. By the way, everyone, I am nerding out, and every answer you give, I'm like, I'm a l- I'm I'm a little bit like Susan. This is great. And, and <laughs> each next thing that comes that comes forward that makes me that I can relate to makes me feel like I could still become a, an amazing writer. Um, how about uh, like an a, like a pl- like science like science fiction slash fantasy three places that you could live? Could be uh, like Narnia. Could be oh uh, include space because that seems unlikely. Um, I would say. Playmobil land. Ooh, I like what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, And by the way, if you need to do like a phone a friend where you want to give up some of your answers to Austin and you (laughs) want the answer, that's cool too. Where would we want to live, honey? Would we want to live in Narnia? Nah. Someone said Dagobah once. I was like, that seems moist. Where do you think? What about the Shire? That's kind of nice and green. Yeah, I would say, um, actually, I'd love to live in King Arthur's time in Camelot. Ooh, I love that. That'd be very, very excellent. Okay, wait, Playmobil Land, Camelot, what was the middle one? Did we say one yet? Did I don't think we oh, did. Oh, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, let's, I think we're going to just have to go... Well, I always wanted to live with the Jetsons, so mm. let's say in the future with the Jetsons. And also in a cartoon. I love, mm-hmm. I love everything about it. Um, how about um, a, a fictitious best friend, somebody from literature or film, three people that you wish were real people that you could uh, call a dear, dear friend of yours? Mm, well, to just continue the King Arthur theme, Merlin. Love it. Absolutely. Um, who else would we want to have as a friend, honey? I wish you guys could see this. Maybe Austin will let me take a picture of him. It, he's working on the ad at, and it's like he's working on my car. <laughs> I know. I he was has just his looking head at that underneath the ad at, like a like a mechanic. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. Awesome. I, do you need your muffler done too, Austin? Can, can I take a picture of you? It, it's okay, very this funny. This is this is good stuff right here. This will be a good tease because it sort of shows the room, but not really. You'll get like just the edge of the carpet, and my phone is taking forever. Um, okay, oh, so so far we only have Merlin, right? Uh, oh, I th- oh, I'm sorry. A pig in Minecraft. All right, I'll let you. I'll 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 let Austin throw that in. I don't even know in. what that is. Um. A a mi- yeah, Minecraft the Minecraft pig. pig. Merlin and <laughs> I gosh, that's a that's a tricky one. I'd have to say who's my other fictitious best friend? Mary Poppins. I love it. What a joyous film that is. Yeah. I would say almost Burt too for Mary Poppins. Yeah. Especially if it's Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Um, okay. I know what I want my last one to be, so I just have one more. Um, a vacation home. Where is it? 
in real life or in my fantasy? fantasy. Oh, okay. Oh, well, God, that's you're torturing me. Mm-hmm. Um, Cuba. Mm, great answer. Um, I'd love to go to Cuba. I've not been. It's very awesome. That's what I hear. Yeah, it is. And it's not just because it's a forbidden fruit. Ooh! No, it's really cool. That is amazing. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Cuba, um, the Serengeti. Okay. And um, Tuscany, yes. just to be Hard to totally beat. literal. Hard and, to beat. You know. Okay. Here's the last category. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. <laughs> oh, no. What three things are a man's best friend? <laughs> oh, my God. You're killing me. You're killing me. Uh, um, well, to the, to the tunes of the ad ad sound uh, that well, I was playing for. Well, gosh, Janet, mm-hmm. I'd have to say mm-hmm. uh, emeralds, uh, topaz, uh-huh. and um, sapphire. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, now I need to tell. <laughs> I need you to tell me when to stop. Stop. Okay. Okay. I'm going to pause this. I'm going to do the uh, countdown of process by elimination. It's kind of an eeny, meeny, miny, mo situation. When I come back, we'll reveal your future to become. Okay. Whoa! I'm excited. Okay. the The mash game has spoken. Um. There's a lot of different stuff going on here. I'm always looking for the way in. Here's one thing. I don't know if in all of your traveling, for example, the piece that you're going to be doing on India, mm-hmm. I don't know if you got there via umbrella, but I can tell you that if you were traveling with your best friend, Mary Poppins, <gasps> that is certainly the means by which you arrived there because she does travel by umbrella. So I like to imagine that you travel by umbrella. Oh, here's a sound from the ad at. Do you see that the lights shine in the front? Look, press it again. Oh, it didn't do it this time. He installed. He's really put together this whole thing for me. Um, uh, so I'm going to go to India with to Mary India Poppins. Via umbrella with Mary Poppins. You're, this is there's a lot going on here because your vacation home in Tuscany mm-hmm. is not that close. To the landmark, I can only assume you do spend time being responsible for it, the Great Wall of China. (laughs) Mm, It's kind of a commute, but all right. I also don't know, in India, China, or Tuscany, how much use your being influent in Spanish will be. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, okay. Italian is a little bit like Spanish, so Uh, maybe that'll be helpful. (laughs) Um... And I doubt that you'll be speaking much Spanish from the little I remember about the Jetsons world. I don't remember a lot of uh, Hispanic folks. So that, there, there's got to be room. What I love about this is that this is a little of everything, just like everything else in your life. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, I don't know if you keep your, uh, your fox at the, the Jetsons home type place in the future with them, or if you keep it in Tuscany. I... He prefers Tuscany. I think he probably actually. does. I think yeah. he probably does. Um, and uh, that leaves us just with uh, the fact that you live in a shack. <laughs> which I apologize. You could have lived in a mansion, apartment, or a house, but you ended up with a shack. Oh, so, uh, I hope... I don't know if... Your shack, I guess, is just here in Los Angeles, and then your... Um, yeah. The, I, I, yeah. And we all yeah. know that to be the case. So this is just kind of... 
where I keep my yeah. my voting yeah residents and where I keep the- my voting residents. Uh, and then finally, the answer to the question everyone has been wondering, and I'm glad to say your sage wisdom has provided the answer: topaz, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Topaz are a man's best friend. Oh my god. I don't know what the plural for topaz is. Topaz is. Topazzi? Topazum. Topazums are a man's best friend. Susan, well, thank God we finally put that oh, question to rest. Okay. You got closure <laughs> oh. from that interview. And it only took place about 20 years ago, so I am... I got to get in touch with that gentleman, ASAP. Let him know. We still got the answer. Ugh. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for doing the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. The time flew by. Austin, were you bored stiff? No, you had the ad to play with. Did you have an okay time at Janet's house? Like, uh, yeah, that, according to an eight-year-old boy, that's a double a thumbs up. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much. Anything that you would like to uh, talk about? Plug? To, uh, certainly, I would invite yeah. people to follow you on Twitter. Oh, I think that is yeah. That is follow me on Twitter. It's um, I, I came up with a kind of creative Twitter handle, Susan Orlean. Fantastic. I know. See, I went crazy. with Janet Barney and now it seems oh. so dull compared to yours. I know. Well, yeah, I, yeah I, this just was, it kind of struck me one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just uh, wear sunscreen. Oh, I couldn't get more on board for that. Yeah. Definitely. Every episode with wear sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> Especially oh. when listening to the radio. Yeah. Please, please, guys, <laughs> for your own safety. Um, all right. Well, we will talk to you next time on the podcast. Thanks again, Susan. You bet. As always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. Now leaving Nerdist.com.